The 138th Psalm starts out with David saying, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called you, let me rephrase that. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty or the arrogant, he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I want you to read that out loud with me. Will you do that? The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. These days that you and I have been born into and are living out the, the days assigned to us, they're very much like what Job said in Job 14, verse 1, that for those of us that are born of woman, and we all were, uh, our days are few and they're full of trouble. That's what the scripture says. The scripture, one of the most glorious things about the Bible is it's real. It's raw. It's not a fairy tale book. It's not fables. It's not... Uh, just a book of flowery poetry. The Bible gets down into the grit of where we live and tells us how things really are, but never allows our circumstances, our emotions, even our positive dreams and goals, never lets that be the centerpiece. The centerpiece is always Jesus. The centerpiece is the character and the nature of God. And every single one of us that are in the room today, we have this little thing inside of us that is constantly seeking a place to throw down an anchor, exhale, and know that we're secure. It's in every single human heart. Most human hearts have misplaced that anchor. They have found something inferior, something that can't hold, and they've sunk their anchor into that saying, this will be my security. This will be my safety. This will be the thing that causes me to never be moved. And there's a whole host of things that we can put that confidence in. Some people put it in other people, and then other people die or disappoint, and they're no longer there, and that person loses their anchor. Other people, and a vast majority of people globally, will put that kind of security and that kind of rest into finances. They think, oh, the more money I get, the more things I can provide myself to insulate me from the dangers of life. And so if I can just get enough money or stuff, then I'll be secure. And then the stock market blows up or a job gets lost or a career gets sideswiped through um, a debilitating injury. It's a whole host of things. And then they find that anchor is misplaced. Then some will try to do something a little more noble. They'll say, it's religion. I need religion. I need to do good. I need to think good thoughts. I need to behave. I need to go to church. I, I probably need to do some sacrificial noble deeds. I need to help out people that are less fortunate. If I can, if I can moralize myself into a place, then God will be obligated to protect me from all the bad stuff in life. And so they barter with God. 
They bring their religious stuff and then they presume that God will insulate them and protect them and keep them safe from all harm and trouble. The reality is, is there is no anchor that can guarantee you the security that your heart longs for. Uh, matter of fact, there is no guarantee in this life that you will live a perpetually immunized life from difficulty. The opposite is true. It is through much trouble that we enter into the kingdom. That's the, what scripture teaches. And so we, at some point, we have to come to this both theological and philosophical place where we recognize, okay, the goal in life is not to insulate myself from trouble. The goal in life has to be broader and bigger. I'm still searching for an anchor. I'm still longing to find that steadfast place of my hope. And I'm learning it's nothing on the horizontal. Lord, I guess it's you. And some of us stumbled into that place. And it is in those moments where our religion does us no good because it can't help us. Our money does no good because it can't answer the deepest need of our soul. Other people can't do us any good because good as they may be and try as hard as they may, they just can't bring that sense of peace. Where do we find rest? Where's our rest? Well, our rest is in the Lord. Now, you expect me to say that because I'm a preacher and I'm in church, but I believe it. I've discovered it. I've lived it. And I'm going to preach it today with all of the confidence. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, the Lord, I'm going to tell you right at the onset that this message is both um, uh, revelation and invitation to you. I want to reveal the heart of God. I want to reveal why you can find your ultimate rest in him. But ultimately, all I've got is my words. He's got to give you the revelation. He's got to take down all the other things that you trust in. And he's got to present himself as irresistibly glorious to you. And in that moment where that happens, your soul will, will cast itself at, in his feet, at his feet and say, care for me, Lord, take care of me. So let's go through these handful of verses and uh, let's just see what the Lord will speak to us this, this morning. I want to start off by telling you that we must anchor ourselves in the certainty of God's character. Why must we anchor ourselves in God? It, for me, it all traces back to his character his character. I don't understand all his ways, but the Bible is very clear on his character. First of all, when we are anchoring ourselves in the certainty of God's character, it's going to do something. It's going to elicit from us. It's going to draw out of us a total surrender. The Lord is not done with any of us in this area of surrender. Hopefully, you're more surrendered than you used to be, but you're not as surrendered as you can be. And the psalmist, David, says this, Lord, I give you thanks. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. That wholeheartedness is emblematic of a complete surrender of oneself to the Lord. And David is putting that expression of his surrender in the context of giving thanks of being grateful, of looking up to God and saying, I am astounded at how good you are, and I am amazed that you are that good to me. And David has a history, of course, with the Lord, and he can go back all the way down to his teenage years with the lion and the, and the bear where he protected the sheep, and God gave him superabundant anointed strength, and he killed the lion, and he killed the bear, and he delivered the sheep. And then from that point on, all the way through his life, David's able to go and memory mark some things where God had come through and he's just coming to this place where we're going to find out in a minute that he's actually in some form of non-specified trouble. That's what makes this psalm all the more important because David's not, you know, sitting in, you know, the Bahamas in an easy chair, listening to the waves and feeling the wind. 
David's actually in trouble, but in the midst of his trouble, he's saying, thank you. Lord, I thank you with my whole heart. One of the things that I'm personally pressing into, and I want to encourage you never to stop doing this, is I want the Lord to have all of my heart. And unlike maybe a lot of people that would preach it and say it and feel it and live it, I'm pretty convinced he doesn't have my whole heart. Does that encourage you that a guy who doesn't have, God doesn't have his whole heart is preaching to you today? The, the reality is I'm just being honest. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you. See, see, you don't know how much of his heart, that, how much of your heart that he has until he tests it. Testing through removal. Testing through change. Testing to adding something to your life that you weren't in the mood to receive. And, and, and there are so many places, and so we sing it, and we can teach it, we can preach it, and we say, I'm just a wholehearted believer. I'm just going to say, let's be accurate. Let's, let's just come to this place where we say, Lord, I'm pretty confident you don't have every single piece of my heart, but I want you to. And David is not overthinking it. He's just saying, Lord, I'm giving you thanks in this moment, and in this moment, I'm giving you thanks with my whole heart. So when we are able to anchor in God's character and the certainty of it, we're able to surrender our whole heart progressively. The reason why we typically hold back parts of our heart, if we'll trace it down to the foundation, is there are elements of distrust of God in our hearts. And it's only in those places where we don't trust him that we hold back from him. But where we trust him, we're easily surrendering. And so there's that constant call to be a wholehearted believer. Go further with me. At the end of verse one, end of verse number two, I like what David says here. You see this certainty of God's character we throw our anchor in it, it's an instill, it instills in us a holy loyalty. David says this, before the gods, little g gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple. He's referring to the tabernacle there. The temple had not been built. And, he, and I give thanks to your name. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and I give thanks to your name. So we don't know exactly what David's referring to. When the word God's there is used, it's actually the same word that's used for God, big G God, but in the context, it appears that David is saying that in the presence of the, the deities of the land, in the presence of those that worship these false deities, in the presence of things that impress people, maybe it is other people, maybe it's rulers and kings and powerhouses, or maybe it's even angels, but Lord, whoever's watching, I'm not impressed with them, I'm impressed with you. And Lord, whatever's going on in my heart, I just want you to know right now, I'm bursting forth with wholehearted praise and I don't care who sees me, I'm singing your praise. I'm bowing down towards your holy temple where your presence resides and I'm giving thanks to your name. Practical pastoring point here. Friends, when we are anchored in the certainty of God's character, we will not slack off, we will not back off, we will not be intimidated by the polytheistic culture that we live in. That's just a $5 word that means there's a lot of gods in the land. Now, we're dignified. We're Western civilization. We don't really think of, of our land being polytheistic. We still got something on our currency about, uh, you know, one God and things like that, and God we trust. And, but the reality is, is America is just filled with pagan gods. You know, they're not the gods that have totem poles or little gold images or creepy little faces. Those are out there somewhere, but we're, we're talking about respectable gods. God's like fame, God's like beauty, the gods of success, the gods of, of, of self-esteem, the gods of lust, the gods of revenge, the gods of nonstop competition because we must be the best. 
Or as others have said, how about that, that great Pope of self, the God of self. And yet David's saying, Lord, when I'm in your presence, uh, those little G gods disappear from relevance. They don't entice me. They don't tantalize me. I don't care if they hear me or the people that worship them hear me. Can I remind you that to be a Christian in 21st century America is to be a countercultural counter -cultural citizen? Uh, you, you and I don't fit in in the culture if we are living, as the psalmist has said, following Jesus with our whole heart. When we speak of Jesus, when we speak of his atonement, when we speak of his resurrection, when we speak of his coming, when we speak of his kingdom, we're going to get some, some weird looks from people because they're just trying to bow down at the, at the altar of the almighty dollar or whatever it is that they're chasing. And yet you and I have gotten to that point where we say, I don't care what they think anymore. Some of us, we just need to grow in boldness and some of us need to redefine boldness. Boldness is not obnoxiousness on Facebook. That's not being bold. That's throwing your grenade and running. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about bold love. We're talking about bold truth. We're talking about bold integrity. We're talking about living boldly for the glory of God because there is no greater thing that captures your heart. And David is describing that to us. And he's like, yeah, I don't care who worships what. In their presence, I'm going to be giving you thanks. I love how the first two verses are rooted in this, this aspect of being a grateful believer. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, uh, the first step towards apostasy is an ungrateful heart. And I, I have found in my life when I lose my thanks, I'm about to lose a whole lot of other stuff because that seems to be the engine often that drives. Go down into verse, into verse two. So we're, we're talking about the certainty of character. If you're certain as character, you can live in total surrender. If you're certain of God's character, you'll be living in a holy loyalty unto him in the midst of a land filled with other gods. And if you're certain about God's character, it's going to produce in you a growing confidence. At the end of verse number two, look at why David is able to give thanks. He says, because of your steadfast love, he's talking to God, because of your faithfulness, because you have exalted above all things your name and your word, David's found the foundation for life. He's found something worthy of throwing his life anchor into. And notice, it's not me, it's not my, it's not I. It's you and yours. You and yours, O oh Lord. Your steadfast love, a love that never changes. Chances are in a room this size with this many people in here, some of you didn't have your best spiritual week last week. Some of you may have stumbled. Some of you may have fallen. Some of you may have slidden back into things that God had previously delivered you from. Some of you may have doubted God. Some of you may have chased other gods for a day or a half a day or five days. The reality is, is if your anchor is in you, you're feeling really bad about your relationship with God right now because you're, you're on the treadmill of performance. But that's not what David's saying. David's saying, Lord, I'm giving you thanks in the presence of all of these other gods. I'm giving you thanks with all of my heart. Why? Not because I'm awesome, but because you are. Because of your steadfast love. What does that mean? A love that never ends, a loving kindness that never moves away. Because of your faithfulness. How many of you have come to that place where you're so glad that God is faithful to his own self? I mean, my goodness, aren't you glad he's not like us? I'm not here to badger us, but I am here to force us to be honest with each other. We, we move in and out of faith, faithfulness in varying degrees. Now, I hope that you're moving further and further and deeper and deeper into regular faithfulness. But the reality is, is that we still struggle with the flesh. The Bible says the flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. 
And depending on which one is getting fed more, your flesh or your spirit, that determines who wins on any given day. But on those days where the flesh seems to have gotten the upper hand, I don't try to undo what's been done. I just come back to the faithful one and say, you are so faithful to yourself. I change, but you never do. I stumble, but you never do. I falter, but you never have. Your faithfulness, Lord, is where I throw my anchor. That is the, whole, the, the foundational component of grace, the unchanging character of God. As he was, he is. As he is, he will be. It'll never change. And that's what we're all looking for. We're saying in our life, we're somewhere where I can drive down a tent stake and live there where the ground's not going to shift. That's in the character of God. I love the fact that David also says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Uh, different translations, it's a little tricky in the Hebrew, and there's different ways of translating it. And I searched all the different translations, and whatever one you're carrying speaks a truth on that. I'm going to go with the English Standard Version here. I think it's accurate. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. Why is that important? Because God has put his character on the line. He says, my name, who I am, and my word, what I have promised, I exalt those above everything else. What does that mean? It means God will always be true to who he is and what he has said. One of the reasons why we are a word church, yes, we're a spirit-filled church. I want to always press into that. But I'm going to tell you, we must remain anchored in the objective written word of God. You know why? If you don't know the word, you're creating a God of your own delusions. That's who you're serving. The Word is the self-revelation of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he magnifies his Word, then we realize he's going to be true to it. And so if I know his Word, I know what he's true to, I know what he's against, and I can throw my anchor down deeper into what he says because he's magnified his Word. And if we're kind of in and out and hit and miss with the Word, or the Word's kind of a, a lot of people unfortunately think, well, man, as soon as you open the Bible, the Spirit leaves the building. I've seen that, man. I've been to conferences. I've been in churches. I've met with, with Christians that they think theology and doctrine and teaching and Bible instruction, that that just, the real thing is the music and the vibe and the moment and the expression and the shout and the gifts. I love all that stuff. But none of that stuff can be tethered apart from the word of God. And so we continue to be people of the word. Why? Because God said he magnified it along with his name. He is who he says he is. He will do what he's promised to do. If there's a delay and you're wondering why he hasn't come through, hasn't come through, you haven't waited long enough. Because what he says he will do. Go down into verse number three with me. Along with uh, our need to anchor in the certainty of his character, I want to encourage you here, especially if you're struggling this morning. We've got to remember the certainty of God's concern for us. He's not a distant deity. He's not an unmoving God of anger who's doubly angry because he can't punish you now that you've accepted Jesus. A lot of people have thought that way, that, that you know, I, Jesus I like, but man, don't let the Father get to me. Don't, Jesus, keep, protect me from the Father. You know, it's like Jesus came in and, no, Father, no, and he saved you and he's whisked you away to protect you from the Father. The problem with that kind of theological bend is you forget that they're one. If you want to know the Father, look at Jesus. <laughs> if you want to know the character of Jesus, look at the Father. And so the Holy Spirit wakens us to who, who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just one God. And in, 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 this, in this little chunk here in verse number three, 
I, I want us to recognize that although we can trust in his character, and although we can throw our anchor down deep in that, that doesn't keep us immunized from trouble. The reason why we rest in him is because outside of him, it's all trouble. And until we are delivered from this present world, we will have to traffic in and out of a, of a, a culture and a reality that is filled with all sorts of evil. It's filled with trouble. It's filled with pain. It's filled with suffering all over the globe. And though we are not of the world, we are still in the world. But the last thing I want to have happen is for me to lose my confidence, my certainty in God's concern for me. So let's look at that. First of all, very simply, I don't think I'll have to twist anybody's arm on the beginning of this. Let's just remain aware that difficult days darken. David says this, on the day I called, he's going to unpack it, but he's, he's talking about there was a day where he called out to God. Now, you, you need to understand, David's not just saying an, an issue like, hey, God, good morning, God, calling out to you today. The Hebrew word indicates he cried aloud. He called out in urgency. He shouted for God to, and can I say it this way, awaken and intervene. This was one of those moments. This was one of those seasons where something was going on. He never tells us exactly what. It seems, as we'll see later, that it seems to involve some human opposition, some attack from a human enemy. We're not positive. But there came the day where David couldn't go through his normal prayer routine. He couldn't just do the GBF fast three days and hope God moved. There came a day where he said to the Lord, I need you to answer. I need you to move. I need you to hear. I need you to intervene. Why? Because difficulty had found him just like it's found you. I um, mentioned last week that I would be doing uh, a memorial service uh, Thursday of last week. I mentioned it last Sunday. And I think of my sweet friend, Linda, who for the last 12 years of her life, she was probably around 70 when she died, the last 12 or 13 years of her life, um, she was stricken with a very rare medical condition that just robbed her of all of her strength, robbed her of her able to control her body, robbed her of her ability to walk. And I thought to myself, and this woman loves the Lord, loved the Lord here on earth, loves him now in heaven, and, and, but I think of the context of the suffering in her life. And I don't have any answers. Frankly, we did everything that believers are called to do. And God helped the person that says, well, somebody didn't have enough faith. You better watch it. Let me just rebuke that spirit. It may, I don't know if anybody in here. But when your automatic default to explain healing is kind of a flippant, oh, well, somebody didn't have faith kind of thing, um, I hope you never get into that situation because I'm going to tell you the faith was there, the trust was there, the patience was there, the fasting was there, the praying, the laying on of hands, the anointing of oil, but her, her situation went in and out of varying degrees of difficulty. And ultimately, after 12 or 13 years of this, uh, Linda told her husband um, just about a month ago, she's, two months ago, she just said, you know, I'm done and it's time to go home with the Lord and she was gone. Um, those days and similar days are going to find you 
It may not be that kind of excruciating long-term illness that saps you of your physical strength, but it could be a whole host of things. And all I want to tell you is you and I as followers of Jesus Christ do not have the right to be shocked when trouble finds us. We are not the exception of the rule. Uh, God the Son was not spared from suffering and pain and mistreatment and abuse and agony. It, it comes against us because it's part of living in a fallen world. But the question is, what do we do? Well, I'm going to tell you, we have to remember the certainty of God's concern for us. The trouble does not invalidate his concern. And, and the fact that he is God and he is sovereign does not obligate him to disallow any trouble from ever finding you. So if you're in a season or have been in a season where as a Christian, you were wrongly taught that as a Christian, as long as you obey, as long as you are in the spirit, no trouble will find you. You have to rip out massive parts of your Bible in order to believe that successfully. Because every single one of the apostles martyred. The followers of Jesus Christ in the early church persecuted, imprisoned, martyred. There is trouble in the world, but God promises one thing. He never promises that we'll never have dark days. He says, I will fellowship with you in those days. I will accompany you. And that's not a technicality. Say, yeah, well, we know that. No, that's the greatest thing that could ever happen to any of us. That God would move in and be with us and partner with us and allow us to partner with him in the midst of the sufferings. And so when that day comes, like David, we have to cry out. We have to call out. Um, most dads and every mom in the room knows what it's like when you just don't want that baby to cry your name again. You just don't want that two-year-old, mommy, for the hundredth time. And y'all know we reach our limits. Dads have a real short threshold for that. The, the ladies just have something extra on them. But, but eventually everybody's like, please don't call my name. Please don't call my name. Please don't call my name. And God the Father with the innumerable amounts of people that are calling out his name every single day in pain and desperation, God never says, don't call my name. God never wearies of your cry. He never gets frustrated with you. He never gets upset. You're not a bother to him. And he loves to hear our dependent cries. When we are in those difficult days and they darken our lives and we cry out to him, look at the end of verse number three, able answers will arrive. There is something that God begins to do. David just said this, on the day that I cried, you answered me. Now, I like that kind of prayer life right there. I mean, you, you, you've got some chronology there. On the day I cried, you answered me. Uh, that happened to me like once, I think. You know, it's just not the normal pattern for me. But on this thing, David got so backed into a situation and God answered him. But I want you to go down into verse number three at the end because I'm going to tell you, God didn't remove the problem and that's what we usually pray for, right? We, when we are crying out to God, our default position is make the bad thing go away. Make the pain go away, the trouble go away, the thing that's frightening me, make it go away. Lord, I don't want a shadow on me. Make the shine the light of your presence and your goodness and your rescue and make the shadows of darkness and trouble go away. But look at what David says. What David got was not an immediate deliverance from the situation. Verse number three at the end, it's in this developing depth is what God gave David. 
He says, you answered me and my strength of soul, you increased. Now, let's just pause here. All of us long to be circumstantially strong. We want our anchor to hold. We want to be strong in our bodies, in our minds, our emotions, our finances, our reputations, our ministries, our careers, whatever. We really don't have any kind of appetite for lingering weakness. And the way of this world is to offer us thousands of things that will shore up our weaknesses and help us feel externally strong. And God doesn't want us trusting in those things, so he, he initiates circumstances and seasons where those things prove to be unworthy of our trust. Y'all following me here? So there's, for us, there's got to be this constant awareness that God actually works against those things that we put our trust, our false confidence in. He actually works against them. I'll just give you this. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. If you are actively putting your confidence, your sense of security, your trust, and your faith in something other than him, on some level, he is right now working to disengage you from trusting in those things. He's calling you to look to him. It doesn't mean you have to lose those things, but it does mean you have to lose your trust in those things. You have to, in one sense, renounce why? Because he wants you to be strong in your soul. He wants you to be spiritually strong. He wants you to be strong in him and nothing external. As a matter of fact, it's Proverbs 18, 14 that says, the spirit of a man will sustain his weakness, but who can bear a wounded spirit? So what David is getting here is not a disappearing act of everything that was bothering him. Some, sometimes God will remove the burden and sometimes he supplies the strength to endure the burden. The one thing he doesn't do is not answer. And so I don't know if, if, how you've trained yourself in this. When I don't get an immediate answer for my cry out from deliverance, because I don't want the dark day to get any closer to me, when, when, when it doesn't go away and I'm in it, there are times where I sense, okay, he's not going to remove it, so I need to receive the strengthening of my soul, which he will always provide. He may not always provide you an escape route out of the trouble immediately, but he will always provide you every single thing you need on that daily bread kind of scheme from him. He will put that in your life, and you can make it. And it's not just gritting your teeth and getting by, it's partnering with God in the midst of the unpleasantness. And we often have the propensity to just get frustrated because he didn't make the unpleasantness go away. Let me just ask you a question here and let it hang in the air for a moment. Just a heart check. Have you questioned whether or not you might have bitterness in your heart towards God because he didn't make the thing go away. It's not an accusation at all. There's no way for me to know anybody's heart in here. But I'm going to tell you, there have been seasons where I thought I was upset with people and through God not making the trouble go away, but entering into the trouble with me, he showed me, Jeff, you're hurt by the people, but you're actually upset with me because I didn't stop it. And those are some humbling moments. The beauty is, is he doesn't come in there as an accusing you know, potentate. He comes in there as a father just saying, hey, I know your heart, let me reveal your heart to you. 
And so when that happens and you abide, you're being made stronger. It's no small thing to be made stronger in your soul. It's no small thing for God to let the pressure, you know it's the pressure on the coal that brings forth the diamond. It, it's, it's the irritation in the, in the oyster that, that develops the pearl. Apart from the irritation, the pearl was just a speck of sand. But it's the irritation and the coating within that animal, that little creature that makes it into something valuable. And that's what God does in our hearts sometimes. So let me do verses four and five. I've got about 15 minutes, and um, let me see if I can get through all of this. Um, I'm not going to hit this long in verses four and five, but I do want to touch it. Another thing that allows us to rest in God is that we can rest on the certainty or rely on the certainty of, the, of his crown, of his rule, of his throne, that God is in charge. God is in control. President Trump's not in control. Uh, the crazy man in Korea is not in control. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be reverent here. Congress is not in control there, I said it. The Democrats, the Republicans, Hollywood, athletes, not, none of them are in control. They're just constantly in our face, but none of them are in control. Who's in control? God is in control. He's got an everlasting, untouchable non-removable crown upon his sovereign head and he rules and reigns from a throne of justice and righteousness and mercy and love and he's in charge he's in charge of you today now there's such a relief in just saying i'm not in charge of me i'm not my own king i'm responsible i'm accountable but i am not in charge of everything some of you are are, are living man i feel just a little prophetic vibe on this some of you are living in a season right now you're living under a presumed pressure that you're responsible for everything and he wants to deliver you from that 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 would make you lord if you were responsible for everything you'd never call yourself lord well don't live as if you're lord there's just some things you can't fix there's some people you can't change there are some some manifestations that you can't make happen a lot of the Christian life is abiding. All of the Christian life is abiding, but there are seasons where you, you got nothing to offer and you have to say, but there's a crown on his head that he's ruling. There's a throne beneath him, a crown upon him, and all of the cosmos spread out before him and nothing happens without his sovereign superintending of it. Man, that'll take some pressure off of you if you'll imbibe that. First of all, he's above human authority. Look what David said. He said, all the kings of the earth will give you thanks, O Lord. Wait a minute. Man, if, uh, there's, there's a whole like eschatological future events thing where this applies, and I just don't have time to run into it. But let me just say this. David himself is a king, and he's saying, when I praise you in front of their false gods, Lord, they're going to end up thanking you because they're going to hear me thanking you. David is aware that what comes out of his mouth is contagious, for good or for bad. And David's saying, when I am praising you, when I'm thanking you, when I'm worshiping to the place of your holy abiding towards the tabernacle, when I'm giving you the glory, when I'm in the middle of my difficult days, I'm going to thank you, O Lord. And he says that he anticipates the result will be other kings are going to do the same. You know how hard it is to get a king to bow? Look at the end of verse 4. He's not only above their authority, he's above human wisdom. Why will the kings of the earth give him thanks? Because they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. We're, 
we're a little detached from this because we're not living in ancient Near East or Middle East. And, and so we, we don't really get it. Kings don't bow and kings don't really sing. It, it was, and if they sing, it's usually after a cup of the, the royal vintage or five. And, and then they'll sing songs that are usually about them and, or, or something else. But, but David's saying, they're going to become acquainted with your words. They're going to become acquainted with your ways, and they're going to sing unto you all the kings of the earth. Let me just give you a few things to, to remind you that at the end of the age, there will still be human government. There will still be nations when Jesus returns to earth. And let me just remind you what the Bible says is going to happen. Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Isaiah 52, 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they now see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. There's coming when the second coming happens, there's going to be this massive revelation of, of, oh, there he is. The king of the Jews has returned to earth and the kings of the nations will bow down. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter number 25 that all the nations are going to be gathered together and he's going to separate them into sheep and goats. In Psalm 72 verse 11, the psalmist cries out, may all the kings of the earth fall down before him and may all nations serve him. Why do I bother telling you that? Because some of y'all are getting all jacked up emotionally because your newsfeed has become your Bible. You're looking at the chaos. Yes, it's chaotic. But it's not so chaotic that it has eclipsed the sovereign crown on God's head. And so when he's looking at this, I mean, he laughs. God laughs at this. He's like, oh, look at them pounding their chest down there. Look at them about to light the wick on some nuclear missiles. Look at them. They think they're in charge. I, I promise you, that kind of theme is in the Bible. The nations rage. And God says, I'm going to laugh at you probably don't need to go there this morning it's a little different than the vibe I set up earlier but the, the reality is is I'm jealous for the glory of God in my generation and and it must begin in the house of God it must begin with believers that we recognize who's in control we're expecting people to honor him out there and meanwhile we're biting our nails and wondering is he going to come through for us of course he's going to come through he's God He's above a human authority, human wisdom. He's above human achievement. Verse 5, great is the glory of the Lord. I don't even have time to, to unpack that. But ultimately, the, David is saying, Lord, you're awesome. Lord, in the midst of my struggle, you're still awesome. Lord, I'm just going to keep praising you. I'm going to keep uh, declaring your word and magnifying your name because that's what you do. And other kings are going to hear it, and they're going to bow down, and they're going to learn the songs that I wrote about you. See, David's a songwriter. And no other songwriter in Scripture wrote more in-depth songs about the glory of God than King David. And David's saying, yep, they're going to be singing them songs. Why? Because God's glory is great. Remember that. Remember that in here. That's, what you, you know, that's, that's why David was able to release wholehearted praise. If you think God's, you know, kind of medium glory, you'll live with medium obedience, medium awe, medium praise if you live if you think God's just you know superficially glorious you'll be a superficial believer but when you are awakened to the glory of God 
Not just through the word, friends. I'm a word guy. I've already established that today. I can read the Bible and know that God is glorious. But I'm going to tell you something. His glory is so great, you can actually experience it. It can actually hit you. And when the glory of God, the kavod, the weightiness, that's what the word means, literally. It means the weight of who God is hits you. It's going to change things. I'm just going to testify. I don't, I don't, let me just... The, this past... Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday was my favorite global bridegroom fast that we've had. GBF, if you've heard us call it that. Beginning of the month fast, whatever you want to call it. And it, it was good. Just It would have been great just in, in and of its own. But the Lord visited the prayer room every day, all day. Every day, all day. And I'm going to tell you, when, when God visits in his glory, when he just releases a little bit, I know we sing Shekinah glory come down, but if that ever happens, we're all dead. Because if, if he releases everything, you're just dead. You're, you're just going to dissolve. But when he just releases a little of himself, the weight of it is to the extent, I'll just, I, I, I want you to know this. I'm not bragging, I'm not boasting, I'm just letting you know the conservatives, supposedly in some people's mind, the conservative Bible guy, Jeff, got so hit with the glory of the Lord Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't speak at times. Billy's talking to me, and I'm going, and just, it was so strong. And there's nothing you can do about it. If you're determined to retain your dignity, you can quench the spirit, you can grieve the spirit. But if you're in that moment, you're saying, God, all we care about is your glory to be released. It is his glory that pushes out dead religion out of my heart. It's his glory that turns my theology into reality in my life. It's his glory that makes him not the distant God up there somewhere who I'll see when I die, but the present God who's with us now. Is anybody hearing me this morning? It is he. And friends, I'm going to tell you, I, I never asked for any of that. I, I never went chasing the kavod, so I could say, hey, look at me. I, I can't walk. I can't stand. I can't speak. You're just going after him because he loves you. You're going after him because he's good. You're going after him, and he knows how to manifest himself to you, in you, and through you, so you don't need to hand him a, uh, a wish list. But don't hand him a do not list either. Lord, I'd love to experience your presence, but none of, not, you can't do these four things with me. You just, I will never do these four things, but come on, Lord, all of it. I'm wholehearted except for these four things which are attached to nine other things, which are, there has to be this level of surrender where we just say, great is the glory of the Lord. Five more minutes, okay? So David brings it back home in verses six through eight. This other reason why we can rest in his glory is we must rejoice in the certainty of his commitment. He's not just concerned from you, for you. He's committed to you. Concern can almost be distant. Like, I'm concerned for people in other parts of the world, but my commitment level is not that I go to them. God is both concerned, that's his heart, committed, that's his hand. And so in verse 6, I just want you to know this. He's fully aware when we're broken. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty or the arrogant, he knows from afar. The Lord is high. He's the one on the throne. He's the one wearing the crown. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There is a great gulf fixed between uh, an unredeemed human being and, and, and God. 
but, but Jesus has brought us near. But the glory of God is so great that clearly we know that he is other than us, wholly other than us. And yet the Bible says he takes notice of the lowly, the contrite, the broken, the struggling, the weakened, the helpless. There's something in the glorious, infinite heart of God that is not repulsed by our weakness. He's drawn to it. Look at the verse, the haughty, the people who think they've got it all together. The Bible says he knows them from afar. Let that sink in for a minute. People that abide in their own strength and take confidence and have thrown their anchor into something other than him, especially if they've thrown it in their own ability, God says, yeah, I see you, but from a distance. That's what the Bible says. For those that are weak and dependent, who do cry out, who do acknowledge that apart from him we're nothing, the Bible says he regards you, he notices, he pays attention, not a glance, but a holy love-soaked stare down that he just is drawn to that. You see how counterculture the gospel is? The culture teaches us, run away from the weak. They have nothing to offer you. Run away from your own weakness. Don't ever become weak. Don't ever acknowledge your frailty. Don't speak it. Just speak blessing. Speak, speak favor. Speak all this stuff. And the reality is, is if we, if we never get into the, the paradigm where we know that we're weak and God's not upset about that, if we can ever get there, we're going to experience more of his presence. Because if we think we've got it all together, God's similar to us. I mean, how many of you want to continuously hang around an arrogant person? Oh, no, there she comes again. Oh, goodness gracious. And we're just, hey, how you doing? Sorry, I got a thing with a thing that I got to get to. And we're like that. And, and God is infinitely more holy than us. And he, God knows, though he is sovereign, he, he, he typically can't do anything with a haughty person. God likes to cooperate with people, and faith is the currency of the kingdom, and haughty people don't have faith. They do. It's misplaced. They trust in other things or trust in themselves, but God is fully aware of when we're broken. So if you're broken today, be broken. Don't come into church and be super Christian, you know, the Captain Marvel of Christianity. No. Be broken. Acknowledge your brokenness. Invite God into it. It's, it's, it's strange, but God, God loves the sound of shattered things. And he's drawn to us. He's intensely personal when you're struggling, verse 7. Here's how I know David wasn't writing all this on a good day. Though I walk, present tense, in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand deliver me. Watch this. He says, I'm actually resting in you in the midst of my trouble. And what is this rest? Look at the pronouns. You, you, your hand, your right hand. You, 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 you. His rest is not that the trouble went away. His rest is that he's being upheld by God in the trouble, and he's able to say, Lord, that is why I can walk through it. I can walk through it because I am not walking alone or orphaned. I am walking held by your right hand that delivers me. And then finally, verse 8. He's faithful never to leave us when we're weak. So, Jeff, I get it. I, I cried out to him in weakness, but I'm, I'm still weak. And it's, 
It's been a week since I acknowledged that I was weak, and I'm still weak. Verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. I like, I, I like the King James in that. King James says, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. It's all the same thing, but I just like that old English on that one. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, it endures forever. And then he prays what we often pray. God, you're so good. I prayed all this. Please never forsake me. Please never turn loose of me because I'm realizing as I'm praising you, you're everything I need. You're the rock in which I have cast my anchor. I am safe in you. I'm resting in you. I'm secure in you. And if you were ever to leave me, I would lose all of my sense of security. I would lose all of my hope. I would lose any strength that I ever hope to have. Lord, don't forsake the work of your hands. Perfect that which concerns me. So the day that you said yes to Jesus Christ was the day you became aware that he was working for you. He was working for you long before that. But on that day, you became aware of it when he saved you. And I'm going to tell you, he began a good work in you, and he will complete it. And it's going to be resisted, opposed, and attacked at times. But your rest is not in the absence of difficulty. Your rest is in the presence of of a God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and he rules and reigns with a tender heart towards you. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let me just, uh, let me just pray. We're going to be dismissed. Humble those, Lord. Humble those who you have to watch from afar. Humble them so they'll cry out to you. Father, for those that have been humbled and humbled again and humbled again and again, let them not lose that willingness to cry out for you. You're giving them strength to bear under the burden. Father, I believe that you will remove the burden when the perfect time comes, but I thank you right now by faith that when the burden is not removed, you are up under it with us. Jesus, I thank you that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, so we bear it. Let us not lose our voice of praise. Let it be contagious. Reacquaint us with gratitude that does not dilute and never leaves us. You're worthy of our thanksgiving. You're worthy of our trust today and when we wake up tomorrow to trust you again. Bless us, O oh Father, to become a people whom you can entrust days of darkness. Help us, Lord, not to be those that always presume to be immune from those things, but Lord, when they come, let us not budge an inch. Let us declare that you are as good in the darkness as you are in the light. Thank you that the crown is still on your head. Thank you that right now in, in heaven, the angels are still crying out boldly, holy, holy, holy. Thank you, Lord, that you still sovereignly rule and that all the kings of this earth will bow down and some of them, Lord, will learn to sing your songs. We trust you today. In the great name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen.